Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Palm Peeps and welcome back to another Rapid Fire Journal Club. As always, we're here with Luke Hedrick, our associate editor, who's been taking us through some of the landmark literature in pulmonary medicine. We will get to critical care for everybody. We just want to get through a lot of home trials first. Luke, how you doing? Hey, Dave, I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Always love to come in here, talk about trials for 10 to 15 minutes, and then move out my day, make sure you carry our lesson on with me. This is a, a, it's an episode I'm excited for. We have mostly done landmark treatment-defining trials, often large. They've been in the uh, New England Journal. They've been JAMA. This is also in a major journal. We're talking about the SARCORT trial today in the European Respiratory Journal. But this is a more recent one. This just came out last year, and it's answering a clinical question for us that I think comes up really often in practice, both in clinic and in the hospital setting. So I'm excited to dive into it. So the trial we're talking about is the SARCORT trial. This is high dose, 40 milligram versus low dose, 20 milligram prednisolone for treating sarcoidosis, a randomized trial. So Luke, why don't you just tell us a little bit of the background about what we knew and didn't know leading up until this trial coming out. Yeah. So at the time this trial came out, we knew steroids were the cornerstone of treatment of sarcoidosis because they suppress granulomatous inflammation. But the optimal starting dose was unknown. Currently, guidelines suggest an initial dose of 20 to 40 milligrams of prednisone per day, but there wasn't a lot of evidence as to whether you should pick 20 or 40. Yeah, I love it. Very simple clinical question. Comes up all the time if you're in bone clinic and you're treating sarcoid patients, especially based on what population is surrounding your hospital and your clinic. I think sarcoid's so interesting because we've known about it for a long time. A lot hadn't changed for many decades in terms of understanding this granulomatous inflammation. Actually, a lot of really interesting things going on right now with more novel treatment for sarcoid. But prednisone, glucocorticoids, certainly the cornerstone of therapy. And so knowing the answer to this question would be really helpful for all of us. So what study design did they do to help us try to answer this question? Yeah, so this was an investigator-initiated, open-label, parallel group randomized trial that was run in a single center in India. So we talked about in another episode, the open label, the fact that this is not going to be the totally blinded trial that we're talking about. Sometimes it can still be helpful because it gives us a, a real world picture of what's going on. This is a randomized trial, which is huge. It is a single center. It is in one country. We do have to think about that when we're going to be extrapolating this to our other finding, but we still are going to have our RCT between these two treatments to help us answer the question. So what were we looking at to know how this was working and what outcomes were we paying attention to? Yes, the primary outcome here was the proportion of patients that had relapse or treatment failure after 18 months. And the way they define those, so relapse, they considered anyone who had a worsening 25% increase or more in symptoms and then either worsened lung function, which they mostly were looking at your FVC percent predicted, or who had an increase in their abnormalities on chest X-ray after tapering or stopping the prednisolone. So summarizing or saying that again, it was someone whose symptoms got worse and then either had worse lung function or worse imaging. I really like the using the FVC as a decline. As we know, sarcoid can cause interstitial lung disease. It can also cause sarcoid airways disease and obstructive disease. 
That being said, if you had significant obstructive disease that would cause the symptoms, you probably are seeing a little bit of a decline in the FDC there because you're bringing everything down. So I think it's a reasonable TN point, maybe leaning a little bit more towards sarcoid interstitial disease than the airways disease. That's just one thing for us to know. Yeah. And then when they were thinking of extra pulmonary relapse, because sarcoidosis, as we all know, is a disease that can do kind of anything. Here, that was considered the appearance or reappearance of any extrapulmonary symptoms or lab findings that were consistent with active sarcoid. So hypercalcemia or an elevated ALK-FOS in someone who has abnormal liver imaging. And then they considered someone to have had treatment failure if they relapsed during the treatment period or within four weeks of completing treatment. Yeah, I think it's important in sarcoid to know that we're going to generally be tapering. We'll talk about the protocol in general. So we want to know if we're having treatment failure or if we're having a relapse after we've completed uh, treatment initially. Uh, with treatment failure, you're probably going to escalate to a non-steroid uh, therapy. If it's a relapse later, you maybe resume steroids and consider a non-glucocorticoid therapy. Uh, Luke, you have a real art for summarizing who our patients are, and I love that way of reading trials. So tell us who we included, excluded, and then give us your great Luke Hedrick patented summary of who these patients are. Thanks, Dave. I, I appreciate it. I feel like I have to frame it this way or I can't get things to stick in my head. Uh -huh. So for the Sarcoid trial, the inclusion criteria was anyone 18 years or older who had a chest CT consistent with sarcoidosis. They needed a tissue sample with non-necrotizing granulomas and excluding alternative diagnoses. And then they needed either significant symptoms, like a MMRC of one or more, a cough for two or more months, or they needed reduced lung function or extrathoracic manifestation of sarcoidosis that was requiring steroids. And then in terms of exclusion criteria, they excluded pregnant patients or patients who were lactating. Anyone who had a contraindication to the, in, the intended intervention, so prednisolone at 20 to 40 milligrams daily. And interestingly in that, they included sarcoid manifestations that need higher doses of steroids. So neurosarcoid, cardiac sarcoid, vision-threatening ocular sarcoid. Of course, they excluded anyone they couldn't get consent from, which is always a, a good thing. And then anyone who had steroid use for 15 milligrams per day or more of the equivalent of prednisolone for more than three weeks in the last two years. And the idea there being, I think, that would be someone who's maybe more steroid dependent. And then lastly, people who had symptom onset more than two years before randomization. I think the idea there being that the aim of the trial is to help clarify that initial starting dose of steroids. And so someone who's had symptom onset so much longer than before they were randomized is probably not the first round of steroids they've received and is maybe in a slightly different clinical situation. Totally. So, so who does that leave us with? So putting that all together, it leaves us with relatively steroid-naive adults with tissue-confirmed sarcoidosis causing non-life or limb-threatening symptoms or complications that required a low to moderate dose of steroids. Yeah. And if you are a POEM fellow, like you are a POEM attending, you will have this patient in your clinic. Comes, they usually have had a chest x-ray, they have lymphadenopathy, you get a biopsy, they have sarcoid, they have some symptoms, and you have to decide what. But to go into that, what were the two different therapy regimens that the patients could have taken? Like you're alluding to, they randomized folks to one of two arms. There were 86 patients. They were randomized one-to-one. -one. Overall, these were 26-week tapers of prednisolone. 
the high dose arm started with 40 milligrams per day for four weeks and then tapered that every four weeks to 30 milligrams, then 20, then 15, 10, and then finally five. And after four weeks on five milligrams, they tapered even more to five every other day for two weeks before stopping. So they got a total of 33, 90 milligrams over 26 weeks, or um, just under three and a half grams of prednisolone. For the low-dose group, they started at 20 milligrams for eight weeks, and then 15 milligrams for eight weeks, and then 10 for four, five for four, and then finally they ended with a similar two-week every other day regimen for five milligrams of prednisolone before stopping. And so for the low-dose group, that was a total of 2,410 milligrams over the 26 weeks, or just under 2.5 grams. And then anyone who missed a follow-up appointment, they called them if they had improvement or resolution of their disease at their last visit, and on that phone call didn't report any symptoms, they were considered to have not relapsed for the intention-to-treat analysis. Right. And I think these treatment regimens really reflect the nature of sarcoid when you're treating it, it's generally very steroid responsive. These are not super high doses of steroids. We sometimes give this whole amount in three days in the hospital for people who are sick with different diseases, but it has a high rate of coming back. And so you do this long, slow taper to try to control everything and prevent the patient's symptoms getting worse. Uh, all right. So what were the outcomes that we'll start with the primary outcome for relapse and treatment failure? How did the groups do? Yeah, the headline here really is just that there was no difference in the rate of relapse or treatment failure between the two groups. There was 46.5% versus 44.2% high versus low. This held true across every subgroup that they looked at by age, sex, body weight, chest x-ray staging, dyspnea severity, your FEC and spirometry, or whether you had extra pulmonary disease or not. And the mean time to relapse or treatment failure didn't differ between the two groups either. It's about 307 days versus 269 days. Yeah, no difference, which is great. And over a long time, this is uh, coming up on a year that they're looking at over for the time to relapse in both groups. You can feel pretty comfortable. One nuance I would add here is just that we often skip over the power calculation just because these are quick podcasts. But here, I think it's relevant in the way that you interpret this, or it could be considered. They're, they powered their trial to detect a 34% difference in the relapse rate between the two groups, assuming a 60% relapse rate in the low-dose group, and then a 26% relapse rate in the high-dose group, which is a huge difference and a really high relapse rate in that low-dose group. And so in both arms, it's, it's interesting that the relapse rates were lower than what they anticipated. And so that kind of raises the specter of underpowering. They talk about this in the manuscript, but they redid a power calculation using the observed relapse rate in the low-dose group, and they would have nearly needed nearly 10 times as many patients to detect a 10% difference. And so while there may have been some minimal numerical differences, I think it's hard to say whether there may be some real difference that we just weren't powered to detect, for whatever that's worth. Thank you for pointing it out, Luke. I think this is really important when you're reading a study and you're really trying to decide for yourself how to interpret it. One of the huge things to look about is the statistical plan and the power that you were anticipating. And that includes the, the point estimate for the outcome that you're thinking about and how many patients you had and what kind of difference and is that difference reasonable. And I think one, oftentimes that can lead us to 
think a study has some meaningful in- outcomes, even if they don't look meaningful. So for example, that sometimes shows, oh, you don't have statistical power, but it looks like things are trending the right way. And so we may interpret it a different way. In this case, it makes this question, oh, is this difference? We're just not seeing it. And I'm also reassured by actual really close rate failure. It's not one was 56% and one was 40% and we just don't have power. They look pretty close as well. And then the next thing I always want to take into account when I have questions about that is, are there signals in other outcomes that make me question the primary outcome? And are there anything else that we should know, Luke, in terms of other symptoms, in terms of lung function that would make us question this primary outcome in this chart? Yeah. So there are a couple of things I think to just make note of for lung function. The mean increase in FEV1 and the FVC percent predicted was not different between the two groups, including people who had abnormal spirometry at baseline. In terms of fatigue and quality of life, there was a significant improvement in sarcoidosis-related quality of life and in fatigue in both groups, but that difference, there was no difference, rather, between the two groups. And then lastly, since this is a trial of steroids, and we know steroids do have side effects, Here, they looked at uh, some safety outcomes as well, and there was no difference in the rate of overall adverse events between groups. Although, interestingly, almost 95% of all study participants did have some kind of adverse effect from the steroid. And while almost all the adverse events were numerically more often in the high-dose arm, there was no statistical significant difference individually when they looked at any individual side effect of steroids. Yeah, this is super helpful. I think in terms of thinking of our primary outcome and the power aim, the fact that the lung function and the fact that quality of life and symptoms were the same between the groups is encouraging that the relapse rate was also probably very similar and we can trust that statistical plan. I do worry with safety outcomes, once you start getting down to individual adverse events, there's already so few people in the trial that now you might be talking about eight versus 11. It's really hard to detect that. And so sometimes it's great that there was no difference signal in the safety between the groups, but I do wonder about the power for that. And so that's just something that we keep in mind in the back of our head. We walked through everything, all our outcomes. What takeaway do you have for your practice, Luke, from this trial? Yeah. So for me, my big takeaway here was that in patients with sarcoidosis, causing non-life or limb-threatening symptoms or complications, initial treatment with high-dose steroids is not necessarily better than low-dose steroids. Yeah, I love that. The reason I love this trial so much, the reason I'm glad that you suggested doing this one, Luke, is that it is really applicable to your practice. You're going to have this patient and you're going to think to yourself, am I starting at 40 milligrams and doing this taper or I'm starting at 20 milligrams? And I started 20 milligrams now and I used the taper that they laid out in the trial. And I say that it's evidence-based and I talk to the patient about what they can expect. So it really helps guide clinical practice. All right, Luke, thank you again for being here. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time for our next Rapid Fire Journal Club.